Welcome to COVID Conversations, Life in the Time of Corona. This is a podcast from the Ohio State University's Center for Folklore Studies. In it, we hear from artists, scholars, and humanities professionals in Ohio in conversation with their counterparts elsewhere in the world about how their work, their thinking, and their creativity has been affected and informed by the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Rachel Hopkin. I'm a folklorist and radio producer based in Columbus, Ohio. And in today's episode, which we're recording remotely on the 25th of February of 2021, I'm joined by two writers of YA fiction. Natalie Richards is the New York Times bestselling author of seven books for young adults. She's a lifelong Ohioan and lives in Columbus. Fatima Sharifadeen is the award-winning writer and translator of books for children and young adults and also a writing tutor. She is from and currently living in Beirut, Lebanon, but has also resided in many other places around the world, including Columbus, Ohio. So Natalie and Fatima, thanks so much for joining me for this conversation. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Before we even get going, Fatima, I should ask you, how come you lived in Columbus, Ohio for a stint? Actually, I moved there in 1990 for my graduate school. I came with my husband. We were very young, um, newly married, and we lived in Beirut where there was a civil war. We took our BA degrees here at the American University of Beirut, and there was no hope for us to do our graduate school here. It was very expensive. The city was unsafe. So we decided to leave and we applied to three universities in the United States. Ohio State was the only one who admitted both of us at the same time. So we went there. (laughs) Well, that's a nice connection. Anyway, how are you both doing? We're now almost a year into this pandemic crisis or more than a year into it, depending on when you date the start of it from. Natalie, I'll come to you first. Oh, Rachel, how are any of us right now? Um... It's a little hard for me to believe that we are a year into this. In some ways, I feel like time has flown. And in other ways, I feel like we've been in the same year for 12 decades. I think mostly I'm very tired. I definitely feel spread quite thin. I have three children at home and I am still helping them with virtual schooling. I am still working full time and trying to find creativity to write with so much happening that's been added to all of our plates collectively is really wearing, especially over time. My friends and family often say, I'm a better sprinter than a marathoner. And that's true. I'm very good at accomplishing an unbelievable amount of things in a very short period of time. But this has dragged on to a point that it's more of a marathon and we're just running and running every day as another 16 hours of things to do. So that is definitely beginning to wear on me. But I balance that with there's a lot of hope right now. Our cases in Columbus are finally really down. The vaccine is is rolling out, maybe not as quickly as we would like, but it is coming. So the news is getting better. And that's a trend that hasn't happened in a long time in Ohio, in America in general. So things are trending in a good direction. I'm just trying to hold on for a slightly better day. Right. That's ultimately a little bit optimistic. And I should mention for our listeners, because you referred to it there, that although you are a best-selling author, you also work full-time in the library system in this city, which is, I have to say, is the most wonderful library system I've ever come across. Fatima, what about you? I was reading recently that Lebanon has one of the harshest lockdowns in the world. Can you tell us a little bit about how the pandemic has been in your part of the world? 
in the beginning of the lockdown of the world in February 2020, we were doing very fine. In the first five months, we were really doing fine. We had very few cases per day, almost no deaths. But then the, the country opened up. They were very happy about it. And uh, they opened the airport and uh, Lebanese li living abroad started coming here. Tourists started coming and uh, the cases shot up like crazy. So now we are in total lockdown on and off since actually August, August 4th, we had a huge explosion. I'm sure you heard about it. Before that, we were doing fine. After this happened, life got totally messed up, chaotic. People went down the street very angry at what's going on. And the cases now are very, very high. Uh, Lebanon only has 6 million population. And uh, to have 7,000 per day, that's a lot for us. And 50 deaths per day. So that's a big, big number for us. The vaccine arrived a week ago. They started vaccinating people above 75. And uh, we are all registered on the website and hopefully we'll get a turn one day. But in general, I'm a very positive person. So with the lockdown, I had the chance to slow down and to self-reflect. My brain was numb for a certain period of time in the beginning when the whole world came to a halt. For me, it was something majestic, you know, I would sit on my balcony, there's no noise, very peaceful, no noise pollution, no air pollution, but I wasn't doing any, I wasn't writing, I was just reflecting, thinking, meditating for months and months. I even got into planting, so I have, my balconies are full of plants now and flowers and uh, so in general, I think I learned a lot about myself during this lockdown. Can you give me an example of what you're talking about there? Okay, so one thing I learned that I can meditate. <laughs> so I started meditating, reflecting on the environment where I live in in a different way, my house, my things. Uh, before the pandemic, I was traveling nonstop. So I was really not home for 80% of my time. And then suddenly I'm stuck. And I'm happy I'm stuck because I missed my home. I missed my coziness. So I started meditating, sitting in the sun for a couple of hours in the morning, reading, and also reflecting on my old friendships and relationships. And I don't know why people started remembering each other. So I would get phone calls from school friends I've never heard for you know, I never heard from them since school days. Everybody is making sure you're okay. And, and the feeling that we are all one, you know, the whole world. For me, it was amazing. I don't know if you have the same feeling because in the lockdown, the two months, I think it was uh, March and April of last year that we were totally locked down. We couldn't even go to the grocery store, no cars, uh, no people walking in the streets. For me, it was just like, the world had stopped. It was amazing. That's a great attitude to adopt towards it. Um, Natalie, I think when the lockdown hit in Ohio, you didn't have quite so much time on your hands, right? I did not. Oh, Fatima, this sounds lovely. A little bit, it does. I think, oh my gosh, to sit in the sun for even 20 minutes sounds so wonderful. And I love hearing that because it's such nice perspective from where I'm sitting. And it does help me when I have moments of quiet to say, there are good things in this that we can learn, like any hard experience. 
But no, when the lockdown happened in Ohio and in Columbus specifically, we have a governor, which is our, our state leader here, who made it very clear that the lockdown was coming. And I work in the communications area of a library here in Columbus. And because of that, I knew, okay, this is coming. So the director and the communications director and I were all kind of, okay, we've got a closure coming. And at first we thought, what does that mean? Do we need to close programming? So at first we thought maybe we just need to get all of our programs where people would come into our auditorium and hear a speaker, maybe we'll just have to shut those down. So maybe we're just going to have to cancel because it, again, we had no idea. This was so unprecedented and I cannot even express to you how much I hate that word right now, but it was such an unprecedented situation that we all had to guess a little bit. What is this really going to look like? So we prepared all of the documentation for shutting down a portion of library service. And then we just had to shut the entire building within maybe 36 hours. I worked the longest hours I think I can remember working in the first couple of weeks of lockdown. At the same time, my children were beginning to fear this. My oldest is 17. My youngest is 12. My middle child, who's 15, said, I think we're going to have to leave school. This was right before the lockdown started. And of course, naive mom, I said, oh no, I think it's going to be okay. Just take a breath. Well, she was right. Obviously we know. So then I had to navigate all three of my children are home and I have to set them up. Does everyone have technology? Is everyone able to get online? What in the world does that even mean? Do they get on Zoom? Do they get on a classroom? And every one of them was a little different. And at the same time, trying to imagine writing. I had a book due and I knew that and I couldn't even access that portion of my brain for a while. So it did take some time. I too found moments of peace and of reflection, but not quite in the same way. I introduced you as a New York Times bestselling author, which you are, but am I right in thinking that you became a New York Times bestselling author during the pandemic? Yes. And that was such a strange, surreal thing in the same timeline as my kids coming home, the library closing is this book was getting a lot of good reception from booksellers, from different people in the book area. Uh, and my publisher had planned to send me to several large conferences. And as everything else was being canceled, I was watching this big breakout moment in my career get canceled. You know, ALA was canceled. BEA was canceled. This Hang on, A-L-L-B-E-A? Oh, I'm so sorry. So BEA is Book Expo America and ALA, American Libraries Association. Both of these have huge conferences, which I was scheduled to attend and have appearances at. I had many appearances. And while I'm helping to shut down the library and helping to transition my kids, I'm getting a steady trickle of emails. Hey, this is canceled. This is canceled. That's canceled too. So it was very disheartening. It was also very difficult to celebrate Five Total Strangers. People are dying. Terrible things are happening all over the world. What happened in Lebanon was very close to the time that I was supposed to promote my book. How do I promote a book? How do I really feel right doing that? So my promotion was very quiet. I really struggled with it. My agent and editor were wonderful and understanding because I told them, honestly, I'm like, people are sick. People are afraid. People are out of work. This is a really difficult time for me to feel comfortable being like, hey, look at my shiny book. So um, 
it was so unexpected when I hit the New York Times bestseller list. When my editor called me, there had been so much bad news. I assumed surely this was another terrible phone call. It was also I think two months after the book had come out, and it was doing very well, but I had no concept that the New York Times list was on the radar at all. So when it happened and she called, she said, oh, Natalie, you hit the list. And I was so stunned. I actually responded, what list? So it was a wonderful surprise, but also really surreal. And rather ironically, you refer to the title there, Five Total Strangers. It's about five people locked in a car during a snowstorm. We've just had a big snowstorm here, but the whole idea of being locked in, it's sort of quite prescient given the circumstances. It really was. My editor, when looking at the book, said, this is the most suffocating book I've ever read. And I mean that in the best way, because it is. You're just like, I can't get out of this car. Like she's in so much trouble. It is a stressful book in that way. And then it was really strange to edit it because I did do the final edits as the pandemic was unfolding. And it was really strange to go back and read that book and say, oh gosh, this is really doubly suffocating right now. And do you attribute its success to the parallels between life and art? The book had gotten a lot of attention and interest before that. So I'm not sure. I think there's an element of lightning in a bottle. Like there's just an element of the right cover hits the right place at the right time. I think it was a very good escapism read. If you pick up Five Total Strangers, you are inside a car, you are going through a blizzard, you're fighting for your life in many regards. So I think that it could take you right out of the pandemic and put you in another circumstance. So good escapism, and perhaps that's a part of its success. Okay, okay. So now I want to go back a little bit in time and ask you both a bit more about your writing careers and why you chose to write for the audiences that you have. Fatima, can you tell me how you came to be a writer for children and young adults as well as a translator of books for these age ranges? Well, my passion for children's literature started when I was, you know, since I was a child, I loved books and I always dreamt that I will have my own book. When I went to university, I studied early childhood education. I did a master's in educational theory and practice. When I worked in schools, I always did my lesson plans around children's books. So when my children were growing up, they were in their five, six years old and started to read. They had access to beautiful books in English. We were in Houston at that moment, but no Arabic books. So I would come to Lebanon to fetch, you know, good Arabic books for them to read, to teach them Arabic. And I couldn't find anything of the standard of what they had. So I decided I had to do something about it. And just like that, I wrote four picture book stories. And my next trip to Lebanon, I visited some publishers and I was lucky. It was in 2004. It was the moment where publishers in Lebanon were just realizing this gap. One publisher loved my books, so she took the four scripts and uh, they were a success. She started asking me to write more and more. And so with this first publisher, I think I published around 30 picture books. And then um, I started with different publishers. In the beginning, I started to write for age groups three to six because that was my specialization. And then um, I realized we don't have baby books in Arabic, zero to two, zero to three. So I started writing for that age group. 
And now I'm uh, targeting teenagers because also the young adult books are fully written in Arabic and uh, old-fashioned. Of course, there's other than me, several now writing, but we need a lot of good YA novels written in Arabic. We have lots of translations, beautiful books translated from English and French, but originally written in Arabic, we have few of high quality. Soon after I started publishing, I started getting invited to give workshops in Arab cities, in the Gulf countries, in Jordan, and Syria. And that was, of course, before the war in Syria. So I would go stay for a week, do intense workshop sessions with uh, groups of aspiring writers, and then guide them to publishers. And that's how I was spending most of my time. And the ball kept rolling before the pandemic. I was traveling almost two or three times a month to different places. But now, at this moment, I'm starting to think about my purpose in writing. I mean, this past year has been uh, difficult for me to be creative in my writing. And I'm thinking that uh, maybe I should start thinking of my purpose and what do I want, what what would make sense. As Natalie said, you know, there's lots of death around us. The book industry is at a halt, you know. Here, the publishers slowed down a lot. The sales were very, very low in the last year. So I'm thinking to myself, what's the point now? What do I do? Where do I go from here? I haven't found the answer yet, but uh, these are just thoughts. Fatima, I've thought that same question, like, what's the point? What now? What do we do? Natalie, what about you? I think you've written exclusively for young adults, at least in terms of your published works. How did you choose this area of writing? I think it may have chosen me a bit. I write thrillers, so I write fast, dialogue-heavy, character-driven thrillers, I guess. I've had a couple of editors say that. So I write books that are very specific to a feeling of suspense and a intense, often dangerous situation. I loved books when I was younger that kept me up too late. That was kind of my thing is when you could escape into a book to the point that you didn't want to go to sleep or you were really just lost and it got you that feeling in your stomach of being on tenterhooks. That was a feeling that saved me a lot as a teenager. So when I realized that my strengths lined up to writing for teens and I thought about how critical books were to me at that time, and then Fatima, this is a little like something you said, I realized, and obviously this is a much smaller version, but I realized that the books I was reading when I started to delve into YA fiction as an adult, and this was again quite a while ago, our genre has very much changed in the United States. But at the time, this was probably 2005 to 2008, I was reading a lot of books where the girl was invariably clumsy and lovesick and also perfect. And that was something that really bothered me as I thought we're giving these books to 16 and 17 year old girls, sometimes 13 and 14 year old girls. These girls are going to make mistakes. This is the time in life we all make mistakes. And we're telling them that every hero of every book, if she's female, needs to be perfect. They're book smart and they got good grades and they're totally respectful and they're a teacher's pet. Or even if they're clumsy, like their faults aren't real faults. They make every wise choice. They make every 
good decision. And that's not real. So I think it was important to me too, to say, I don't know that enough teens have voices that really sound like teenager life. Now that very quickly changed. I was certainly not (laughs) the inspiration of that. I think many writers began to change that, but that was something that drove me as well as I thought we really need to represent being a teenager in a more realistic way. Plus there's the element of, I do have the opportunity to teach writing with teenagers, to talk to them about books. It's an incredible audience and student to work with. They're at an age where they aren't cynical. They still believe in possibilities in life. And there's also an element of them figuring out who they are, which is more real in the moment of being a teenager than at any other time in your life. So it's exciting to work with them, to see them emerging into the people that they'll become. So I feel very lucky to write for teens. That's great. Fatima, is that something that you're concerned with in your YA fiction, this issue of representation? Yes, I love what Natalie said about the role of teenagers in uh, young adult books. For me, when I write for young adults, I don't write suspense. I write more social, psychological issues. My last novel was about a girl who had suffered bullying and therefore became anorexic. So the whole book is about her dealing with her anorexia. The book before that is called Cappuccino, and it's about a boy who witnesses his dad abusing his mom, physical abuse. So it's about uh, domestic violence and the role this boy takes in in defending his mom and uh, making her aware of her rights. But then this boy is a very soft, shy boy, whereas his friend, who is a girl, she's very strong and she's the one who encourages him that, yes, you can do something about it. You can help your mom. Let's both do something about it. So, yes, I agree that uh, you have to break uh, the stereotypes that societies and cultures have imposed on the different uh, characters, boys and girls at the same time. So coming back to the pandemic and writing during the pandemic, both of you mentioned that you found it very hard writing during the pandemic. And I was reading this article in the Guardian newspaper online, and it was about this exact subject, difficulties of writing. Although in some ways, you would think that for writers, the least has changed. They're sitting in a room with four walls and they're writing. And in some ways, the pandemic has made that more and more possible because a lot of us have only been sitting in a room with four walls at particular points and not been able to go out. Natalie, obviously, you've got a whole lot of other things going on in your house. But why is writing during a pandemic much more difficult than one might think? Natalie, have you got any thoughts on this? I think it's the creative well. Fatima, I'm so interested to hear what you have to say on this, too. I think people think that writing is as simple as sitting in a room and typing out a book, but it's not. A lot of it is accessing this place of creativity so that I have the energy to delve into somebody else entirely. Like I I need to create a character, dive into that character, really understand them and feel that special spark that is a story and foster it into life. I think that special spark is what is very difficult for me personally to find right now. It is very difficult when you are removed from people, you know, so completely in many ways to remember those interactions, those conversations, just the things that fill your creative well up, I guess. Um, those are missing right now. And I think that's for me, the spark is very hard to find and very hard to hold. You know, there's, there's been moments of real sadness and hopelessness. I've known many, many people who have been ill 
I've known several who have died. It's just really difficult to feel like, you know what, I'm going to dive into a story right now. It's I'm struggling with that. I know some writers have done very, very well. I am not one of them. <laughs> Fatima, what about you? Yes, for me, writing is, okay, I said I'm at peace and I'm meditating and everything, but there is a different kind of peace of mind where you don't have any worries and you dig into your, as she said, the creative well. So for me, I said before, I'm questioning myself, what's the purpose? How can I disconnect myself from everything happening around me? And Lebanon, you have a special case. It's not only the pandemic. We have a huge financial crisis. Nothing is certain. We're always distracted by the news. We have to follow the news to know how to react to things. So there isn't any, uh, there isn't, uh, uh, how can I say? Well, when I write, I'm happy. (laughs) You know, you have to write from a happy place, especially when I write for the younger age groups. Uh, I have to be happy, I have to be playful, uh, to dig into the... Arabic is not an easy language, so when I write, I want to be playful with the language. And now I can't find that playfulness in me. Recently, we had a very close person in my family who died from COVID, and since then, I'm really thinking that life is short. (laughs) Uh, What do I want to do now with my writing? I have to do the best I can do but at the same time my hands are crippled you know I, I I don't know I think after we're done with this pandemic and after I take a distance from it also physical distance I need to travel I have been uh, home for a year now and that's not normal for me I have to be out to uh, visit places to meet children in person to live to have you know, feelings, reactions, and then I can maybe dig into new thoughts and uh, topics to write about. That hits me right in the heart because I think one of the huge issues is I'm not meeting readers. Writing is very difficult. Like, yes, it's a gift, and I'm so incredibly fortunate to be able to do this, but meeting with readers is what gets you through bad reviews or really difficult scenes that you just can't manage or a storyline that just feels complicated in ways you didn't anticipate when you started a book. I think that meeting readers was a huge highlight for me. Seeing them interact, seeing them tell their stories about, oh, your book kept me up so late and I I loved this or this really connected with me about grief. I'm losing a lot of that. So being around my readers inspired more characters I could see things in them, moments, little sparks, and ideas would form, losing those connections. And I didn't travel as extensively as Fatima, but I did travel, and I miss it so much. I think that that is also a big component. And I wonder if there's something about this kind of like constant barrage of bad news that affects all of us directly, that keeps you very much focused in the present in a way that stultifies your ability to connect with some creative part of your brain that's maybe a little further away from the present. Do you think there's anything in that? Yes. I mean, um, sometimes I imagine stories in my head, but I don't have the energy or the will to 
sit down and take it further, you know. The only thing that I can do now when I'm planning is a book about how to write for children and young adults in Arabic. We don't have a reference book for aspiring authors. And at some point I said, okay, I can't be creative, so let's be practical and scientific. So now when I find the energy, I do my research for this project. And uh, I know it's very, very uh, demanded because... Every time I go give a workshop, they ask me, do we have a reference in Arabic? And unfortunately, we don't. So um, I'm escaping from my creative self into my scientific, pragmatic self, uh, maybe just temporarily, but I can't do anything else now. I'm just stuck in this place. Actually, I do want to ask you both about the writing you've done during this time. Natalie, did you have any thoughts on that idea? I do think the news cycle, uh, we've had a lot happening in the United States as well. And the turmoil in our country was something that I've never seen in my life. And I know people older than me had never seen. It is disheartening and heartbreaking. I have children asking questions that are very difficult to answer. The first time my children left the house after quarantine started was to protest in Black Lives Matter protests. And while I'm, I'm so happy my children care about these issues and that it matters to them, it was also so sobering to think this is it. This is our life right now is that you're in quarantine and you're not asking to leave quarantine to go to the park or to do whatever. You're, you're asking to go stand up for social justice because things are so bad right now in this nation. But I also think that that does in some way spark, for me, a determination to see my way through this, to say there are so many young people in this country working desperately hard to undo some terrible things that we have not cleaned up as adults. So for them, they deserve good books. They deserve to have their voice heard. And I know I'm one small author doing my little thing, but I need to try to continue to do that thing. I think it is important. We never know who our books reach. You know, I write thrillers. I don't write deeply philosophical fiction or literary fiction, but I have had so many readers reach out to me to say, you touched on anxiety in a way that really meant something to me, or I felt heard when you said this. And kids need that. So I have to figure out my way through this. They're finding a way to survive it. So I have to, too. Right. And as a person who is not a fiction writer, but an avid consumer of fiction of all sorts, including a lot of thrillers, I can just say that I am a lot happier as a person when I'm in the middle of a good book. So please don't stop doing what you're doing, both of you, because you're needed. <laughs> um, Fatima, I want to come back and talk to you more about this guide your writing in a minute. But first of all, Natalie, you had to carry on writing fiction, didn't you? Because you were under contract. I did. I had a book that was due right in the midst of the pandemic. And it was by far and large, the most difficult, most challenging, most grueling book I've ever written. I was so very weary when I was writing that book that it was just hard to access anything. I managed to get it done. I actually managed to get it done on time, but I knew it was really problematic. So I had fairly heavy edits and I must give credit to my editor. She is with my publisher, Sourcebooks. And Eliza was so understanding about 
my general state of being. I kind of sent in my manuscript with a giant apology. I'm very sorry. And then when she sent her edits, you know, she said, no, no, this is very clean. I'm very hard on myself. That's absolutely true. So I'm sure it was nowhere near the mess that I felt it was. But I knew it was not where it needed to be. And that was a hard feeling of surrender to just say, I guess I've done what I can. Here you go. Thankfully, my editor is amazing and brilliant and found everything I was trying to say and trying to do. So she helped tremendously in me shaping those edits to really clean the book up. And it did take a lot of energy out of me just to to find my way through all of that. I'm incredibly grateful that it's done. And I'm incredibly excited about it now. I think it may end up being an exceptionally good book. I'm actually going through copy edits right now because I really had to work very hard to get things right and to make sure it was clear. My mind has been muddy in the pandemic. I feel like a corona fog. It's very difficult for me to keep everything straight. Usually I don't need to have charts and maps. I have it all in my head. But I did have to write some things down with this book because it was just more than I could manage. And I feel that lifting a little bit when I write these copy edits. I'm feeling more clear, though arguably that might be because the book is now in better shape. But it was really difficult. I can certainly identify with having the corona fog of a mind. I'm not writing any books, but I just, as somebody who's usually very organized and very efficient, That is not a way I would have described myself during this time. Right, right. And tell us a little bit about the book so that we know what to look out for. The book is Seven Dirty Secrets, and it is actually about a girl who wakes up on her birthday to a mysterious gift, and the gift is an invitation to a scavenger hunt. And as she begins to unravel the clues of the scavenger hunt, it starts to look like her dead ex-boyfriend who died under mysterious circumstances may be back and possibly to exact revenge. So it did come together. It was just really difficult to get off the ground. It was an albatross, if you will. It just took a lot to get that bird in the air. I'm sure. Well, huge congratulations and kudos to you for doing so. Fatima, tell us more about this manual you're effectively planning to write or in the middle of writing. Is writing in Arabic for children and young adults very different from writing in English? I mean, is there a reason why you can't just translate a guide written in English into Arabic and say, there you go. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about the differences. I could do, but um, in this guide, I also wanted to include my experience in the whole process. I've been writing for over 16 years, and I have a lot of experience. I'm one of the, humbly, one of the pioneers of Arabic uh, children's literature. So I have a lot to say. I have a lot to share on all levels, on the techniques of writing, of the language, how you use the language, how to deal with publishers, with illustrators. So all of these are issues that I learned along the way. And I want to make it easy to the new writers not to have as much difficulty in, in, uh, in their path. Writing in Arabic is not at all different from any other language as, you know, elements of a story and development of characters and all of it's all the same. But Arabic language itself is a very complex language. There is the standard Arabic, which is the literary language, and then there is the different dialects. There's 22 Arab countries. We have 22 different dialects. Some of them are closer than others depending on the geographic uh, region. So when you write to children, 
children speak the dialect. They do not understand modern standard Arabic before the age of six, when they go to school and they start learning it as a second language. So um, my philosophy when I started writing for children is that I want to write in the Lebanese dialect any book I'm writing for ages zero to six. But of course, no publisher would publish a book written in the dialect. They want it in classical Arabic so that they could sell it in all of the Arab countries. So I had to create a language that is modern, standard Arabic, that is classical, but also very close to children's language. And I discovered along the way that lots of words that we use in our dialect, they actually exist in the dictionary. So I was tricking uh, publishers. Let's say, I'll give you an example. Uh, there are two words to say, uh, to jump. Okay, either natta or qafaza. Qafaza is the classical. Uh, natta is what children use. But also natta, I discovered it's in the dictionary. So I'm going to use natta, you know, a word that children know and use uh, in their daily life. So I did that with lots of verbs, lots of other words, and I developed this language. That's what I want to teach writers to do. Depending on the age group they're addressing their book to, they have to know how to choose the language, how to be playful with the language, how to do uh, rhymes, but at the same time make it natural. Besides that, I want to put in the book lots of exercises that I give them when I go and give my workshops. So the material of the book, it's all in my head and in my notes. I just need to present them in a very clear way. Eventually, I would love for this project to become an online course, you know, like I would make episodes of the book, videos of me teaching it. Uh, we'll see what happens. Any which way it sounds like it's going to be wonderful and I hope it gets translated into English. <laughs> Thanks. Do either of you think at any time in the future you're going to be writing about either this pandemic or a pandemic situation? What do you think? Um, Natalie, I'll come back to you. So this is funny. My writing partner and best friend, actually, every time I talk about a book idea right now, she's like, do you think you'll incorporate a little bit of the pandemic? And it's such a hard no. I do not want to talk about this anymore. I am so personally so opposed to delving into this right now. It's too raw. But eventually, you are able to touch back on painful experiences in your life and connect with readers through them. And I think that's important that I become open to doing that. So I can't say never, but I can absolutely tell you it would take a miracle for me to write about it in the next year or two. What about you, Fatima? Well, I have been asked this question several times from several publishers in the last several months. But uh, my answer is like uh, what Natalie said, it's too soon. I need to take a distance. For now, I have nothing to say about this uh, horrible uh, pandemic, if I ever write about it, especially for young children. I, I don't know, what do you say? I mean, the only thing you can say is how to stay safe and how to social distance. And, and I don't want to do that. But as Natalie said, maybe in four or five years, we can reflect and uh, we can have a different perspective. Well, listen, I want to thank you both so much for taking part in this podcast. Again, you are Natalie Richards and Fatima Sharafadeen.
Thank you, Rachel. That was painless. Thank you, Rachel. <laughs> nice to meet you, Natalie. I look for your books. Oh, Fatima, this is amazing. It was wonderful to meet you. I am astonished by all that you do. When you were talking about the Arabic language, that's phenomenal. That's incredible that you would have to have all the challenges of writing and then challenges of dialect. I've never considered that, so thank you for that. COVID Conversations Life in a Time of Corona is a production of the Center for Folklore Studies at The Ohio State University. It's funded by the university's Global Arts and Humanities Discovery Theme Grant Initiative. So many people have been instrumental in making this series happen, and there are too many to name here, but I would like to express special thanks to Paul Kottheimer, Cassie Paston, and Nick Spitulski. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and thank you for listening.